if you have questions, go ahead and, and send those in. That's online as well. You can, we'll take them the whole time, but we might not be able to get to all of them here. There's, that's the way to send the questions. Um, I'm Robin, in case anybody didn't know. I'm going to be um, our moderator, if you will. I'm not sure that's the right word, but um, I get to ask the questions. Um, so I want to introduce, we, um, as you notice, we, we advertise a panel of three, but we are down to a panel of two. Um, uh, Lori Ar Dr. Lori Arbus was supposed to be our other uh, panelist today, and someone her in her family was around someone who had been around someone who tested positive. And as a precaution today for um, everybody's safety, um, they opted to not come today. So we lost one of our panel members, which puts no pressure on the other two at all. Um, <laughs> But um, I'm going to start by introducing the one that you already know, but just a little bit about him. Uh, and you can, I don't, I guess you know what seat you're sitting in. If you'll just come take your seats as I um, introduce you. Um, Jimmy Inman um, graduated from Carson with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a church planter, uh, the church planter and founder of New Life Church. And, um, he is the father of Jay, Molly, and Lily, and father-in-law of Nathaniel. They got added. That, that's a new one. Um, uh, would you please make welcome Pastor Jimmy Inman? I, I didn't get something like world's greatest husband or something like that in, in, in the introduction. I did call you my husband. Well, thanks for claiming me. That's comforting. Seems like enough. I don't know. Okay. And now I'm very excited to say that we actually have a, a guest panel member, a real panel. Wait, no, not, that's not what I meant. <laughs> We're very excited um, to have um, an, an additional panel member. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Ron Stokes grew up in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where he met his wife, Robin, while they were attending Western Kentucky University. After receiving graduate degrees from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Ron and Robin moved Married and moved, oh, I just got a question, that's not good. Okay, married and moved to New Haven, Connecticut, where Ryan earned his Ph.D. at Yale University and served as pastor of Calvary Baptist Church. Ryan has taught Bible and biblical languages at Western Kentucky University, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is currently associate professor of religion at Carson Inman University. Ryan and Robin have two sons, Seth and Sam. When Ryan is not at school or spending time with his family, he is learning how to play the banjo. That is so cool. And, <laughs> um, at, Let's make him welcome. <laughs> We're glad you're here. And yours was a little longer because we all know everything about, you know, we've heard all that stuff about Jimmy. See, Ryan. Oh, we have a... Now, you all know that Lori is the brains of the operation, so <laughs> take, take it easy on us today. You ready? Yeah. Okay, first question. And I'm just going to say the questions, and you all get to jump in, right? I'm not assigning them to anybody. Okay. Um, a lady submitted this question that she said that a pastor had said in a service that she was in, to go to heaven, you have to speak with other tongues and have the Holy Ghost. And then she went on to say, I've not been blessed with either of those, and I've been in church, the church of God for 50 years. This made me sad. So she, her question was, is that true? I'll jump in on this one if that's okay. Um, so, yeah, the first few of these have been submitted in advance, so we didn't maybe have some opportunity to prepare, which is kind of nice. But uh, the, the, the first thing I would say to whoever sent this in is if, if you have questions after 
this answer, we would love to sit down and talk with you because we want you to have the peace and the joy of knowing Jesus, the assurance that you're going to heaven and not have to be sad because you're worried about uh, whether or not you're going to heaven because you've never actually, um, you know, in, in general, uh, you know, the, the basic answer, you know, why, how does somebody have a relationship with God? How do you know that you're going to heaven? It's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And what I mean by that is the gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God who left heaven, came to earth, <clears throat> died for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God, suffering uh, the punishment that we deserve, dying in our place uh, so that he could give us the righteousness of God, rising from the dead to give us new life. And the way that we... Uh, know that we have a relationship with God is have we repented of our sins and uh, are we trusting in Jesus alone, relying on him, knowing that we have no righteousness, nothing to offer, nothing to contribute to our salvation, that it's all him? Are we placing all of our spiritual weight on him, so to speak? That's how we're made right with God. And then the fruit of that is a, a changed life. Now, um, the Holy Spirit is very much involved with that. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit works in us to bring us to Christ, to, to make us spiritually alive, to give us a new heart. The Bible teaches us that uh, the moment we're saved, we're in, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and he seals us permanently, makes us a, a child of God, and he's there to comfort us, to teach us, to guide us, to convict us, to empower us. He gives us spiritual gifts. He enables us to witness. So uh, you can't have salvation apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But I, I think what's behind the question when it says, and have the Holy Ghost, is there are uh, denominations that teach that you receive the Holy Spirit after you get saved. And the sign of that and the sign of salvation is speaking in tongues. So if, if I could just speak to that, try to clear that up. Um, we actually talked about this last week when we were in 1 Corinthians 12. And if you remember 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. And if you remember, we talked about last week that it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the baptizing. And, this, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not receiving the Holy Spirit after you get saved, but it says very clearly here, baptized into one body, the body of Christ, the church. It refers to the Holy Spirit placing you into the body of Christ. And we, we also talked about that when it says we were all, that that would mean that it would have to happen at the moment of salvation because that's the only way that he could say it about uh, every uh, believer. In fact, uh, Gordon Fee, who's a, a leading New Testament scholar, but he's also a Pentecostal, says, Paul, he says, quote, most likely, therefore, Paul is referring to their common experience of conversion, and he does so in terms of its most crucial ingredient, the receiving of the Spirit. Uh, you know, the great theologian J.I. Packer, who just died this past week, said of this reference to a second blessing, meaning receiving the Spirit after salvation, has to be read into the text. It cannot be read out of it. Now, uh, along with that, when you go later in the chapter, um, Paul asks a series of questions in verses 27 through 30 
about speaking in, or about spiritual gifts. And one of the questions is, he says, do all speak with tongues? And uh, in, in the Greek text, it's very clear, and I think if you read in English, it's pretty obvious as well, that the answer that he is giving there, implying there, is no. And, and so really what he's saying is, um, not everybody has all the spiritual gifts. Everybody has one. Nobody has all of them. Therefore, speaking in tongues could not be a sign of salvation. Now, sometimes, and this is the last thing I, I'll say about it, sometimes people go to the book of Acts and try to use this as proof that you receive the Holy Spirit after salvation as, and, and to, with tongues as the accompanying sign that that's happened. And I would say you have to remember that the book of Acts is transitional. Uh, there are some passages that maybe kind of look that way, uh, not every passage uh, about salvation. But uh, I think the thing that you have to remember is uh, one of the things that's going on in the early church is there's, you know, it started out Jewish, but then Gentiles start professing faith in Christ. And the Jews had to wrestle with this question. Number one, can Gentiles actually be saved? Number two, can Gentiles be saved by, through faith in Christ alone, or do they also need to keep the Mosaic law? Do they need to be circumcised? Those kind of things. Remember those controversies if you've read the New Testament. And it, then even beyond that, and, and maybe this was even the toughest question, and, and we've seen as we studied Ephesians, Paul addresses this particularly in chapter 2, that could the Gentiles and the Jews actually be one body together on equal footing in uh, the, the church? But what you find as you go through the book of Acts, I think, and, and, and you see this specifically re referred to in chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 15, you, you see Peter saying things like, well, the Holy Spirit came upon these Gentiles as we were speaking the word of God to them. They spoke with other tongues. You see that in chapter 10. Then it's questioned in chapter 11 and in chapter 15, the Jerusalem conference where they're determining the doctrine of salvation. And basically what, what Peter said uh, for example, in, in chapter uh, 15, he said, quote, So, um, well, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So what I think that means is, is that they spoke in tongues, as an outward sign that they had received the Holy Spirit, which was uh, evidence of the fact that they had genuinely been saved. And God did this to prove to, to these Jews that he was actually accepting the Gentiles. I believe that was temporary. It's, it's no longer necessary because we have the full revelation of God in Scripture. And, and once you get into... Uh, you know, the later the, the letters in the New Testament, you don't see anything like this. You see things like uh, we're, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You know, what we read in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 13, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and those kind of things. So, uh, you know, I believe that the New Testament very clearly teaches we receive the Holy Spirit, the moment of salvation. We couldn't be saved apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. 
that the evidence of salvation is now a changed life. Jesus said you'd be known, uh, you'd know them by their fruits, that the Holy Spirit is the one who produces that transformation, and that, you know, what do we need to do to be saved? Well, when Paul was uh, asked that question in Acts chapter 16, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So the gospel is what Jesus has done on our behalf. The response to that is repentance and faith that results in a changed life, and uh, you know, that is Christianity 101, and we can have assurance in Christ based on what he's done for us, and we don't need to cloud it with outward things like are referenced in this question. Okay, we have lots of questions. Okay. So just so you know. <laughs> I didn't mean anything about that. She's my wife. That meant don't be long-winded. <laughs> they knew that. Okay, number two. Uh, why did Satan turn evil? I suppose I'll answer this. Can you hear me okay? All right. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, why did Satan turn evil? That's a, a really great question and, and one that I get a lot. I don't know if you... you I didn't mention this in, in the, the bio information that I sent, but I, I've recently published a book on Satan. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about these questions. Uh, but why, why did Satan turn evil? Uh, now, ha having introduced myself as someone who's written a book on Satan, I will say also that this is going to be the most disappointing answer of all of the, the answers that you hear this morning. Uh, because, in short, the Bible doesn't tell us why Satan turned evil. Uh, one of the things I enjoy about superhero mo movies are the origin stories. And, and so we look to the Bible, is there an origin story for Satan? And the Bible really doesn't tell us uh, what Satan's origin story is. And the reason for that is, is complex. In short, I think um, when the biblical authors are talking about Satan, they're thinking primarily of, of, of Satan as someone who has a function within God's plan. Satan isn't this, this rebel who's out of control. He's certainly in rebellion against God, but God has a job for Satan, uh, and Satan is within God's governance of the universe. Uh, and God is in control. And so they aren't so worried about where Satan came from because they know that God is ultimately in control. Uh, there are a few passages that, that folks have cited traditionally uh, to explain perhaps where Satan came from. I don't think that these actually speak about Satan uh, or about his origin at least. Uh, one of these is Isaiah 14, which compares the king of Babylon to a falling star. Uh, a star who's fallen from heaven and, and compares him to someone who's rebelled against God in heaven. Uh, but Isaiah never says that this person is Satan. It, you can see that there are some similarities with Satan, perhaps, but, but Isaiah never identifies this person with Satan. Uh, Ezekiel also, in Ezekiel 28, uh, talks about the king of Tyr and compares the king of Tyr to Adam, who was in the Garden of Eden and then sinned and was cast out of the Garden of Eden. And some, some people have said, well, perhaps that was Satan, uh, because we know from elsewhere in the Bible that Satan was in the Garden of Eden as well. But I don't think that's what the king of, uh, what, what Ezekiel is, is saying about the king of Tyr uh, in Ezekiel 28. Uh, we do have a couple of passages in the, in the New Testament that speak about the fall of Satan. Uh, the main one is found in Revelation 12, which, refer to a, uh, which refers to a battle in heaven between Michael and his angels on one side and Satan and his angels on the other side. And, and Michael is victorious, and Satan is defeated, and he's cast out of heaven. And, and sometimes people will point to that passage and say, well, there's the story of where Satan came from. Uh, but in actuality, uh, that passage is talking about the defeat of Satan 
kind of at the end of time or, or the defeat of Satan by Christ rather than where Satan came from. When Satan is defeated in Revelation 12, it says that Satan is defeated by the blood of the Lamb. And so this is talking about not the origin of Satan, but the destination of Satan, the fact that Satan uh, has been defeated uh, by Christ. And uh, so that's a complex question, uh, a really good question. Uh, ultimately, the Bible doesn't tell us where Satan came from. Um, one of the tricks, when, when I'm talking with students, one of the, the things I tell them, uh, one of the keys to good biblical interpretation is being willing to recognize when the Bible doesn't give us an answer. It's so tempting to try to come up with an answer to questions that, that maybe the Bible doesn't answer. And so one of the keys to interpreting the Bible is simply being willing to say, well, the Bible doesn't give us that answer. So as much as we'd like to know, as much as I would like to know, it would have made my book better if I had discovered where Satan came from. Uh, but uh, but uh, the Bible simply didn't say. Okay, our next question is, does struggling with a sin like homosexuality mean I'm less of a Christian or not even saved? Is this one of the ones that the, the other panelist was supposed to handle? <laughs> Should we call her and put her on speakerphone? <laughs> I'll, I'll start off. Um, you know, I think in a way that something maybe that can inflame this question a little bit is putting the word homosexuality there. And you can put any sin there. You know, does struggling with a sin mean I'm less of a Christian or not even saved? And uh, I think some of the question is, are we talking to being tempted with it? Or does struggling mean, you know, I'm, this is my lifestyle or, 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 or whatever? And so, you know, what, what, what I would say is this. Um, you know, there's nothing sinful about being tempted. We're all tempted and one temptation is not better or worse than any other temptation. And uh, I quoted this recently, but I'll say it again. You know, Billy Graham used to say that there's no virtue in resisting a temptation that's not a temptation to you. And sometimes we need to, um, you know, we, we, don't, we don't need to think of ourselves as better or worse than anybody else because we're tempted or not tempted in a certain way, and they're tempted or not tempted in, in, in a certain way. But, you know, I, I would say if we're a professing Christian, um, we're called to a lifestyle of ongoing repentance, and that's one of the marks of actually being saved. And we may be tempted with something, or we may even struggle with something. We maybe give in to that. Um, are we confessing it? Are we repenting? Are we seeking help? Are we fighting against it? Um, you know, I, I think that's the, the mark of a Christian is not perfection, but, it, but it's fighting the battle. And, um, and, and, and if I could share this, like, this is one of the questions that came in in advance. And I just, I just want to read a little something to you. This is something that I actually had in my notes as an illustration on Father's Day when we were talking about the family and it got cut for time's sake. And I, and I think it fits in, in, in answering this question. So if, if I could just read this, it says, in, an interview, in, a, in a recent interview, popular blogger Jen Hatmaker was asked, do you think an LGBT relationship can be holy? And she replied, I do, and my views here are tender. This is a very nuanced conversation and it's hard to nail down in one sitting. I've seen too much pain and rejection at the intersection of the gay community and the church. Every believer that witnesses that much overwhelming sorrow should be tender enough to do some hard work here. But former lesbian Rosaria Butterfield reproved Hatmaker for this tenderness 
that leaves people in sin. Butterfield wrote, If this were 1999, the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved, instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a bomb of Gilead. Uh, I would have thought, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, which was queer theory and English literature and culture, and in my church. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin, and I suffered the consequences. Today I hear Jen's words, and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't, stop out, I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely, did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin nature deceives us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. It's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. And that's true of every sin. I can answer this very shortly, I think. Um, the same way we would relate to anyone, we, we should love, love that person. Uh, this certainly is a theological issue and an ethical issue and a social issue, uh, but, but none of that changes the fact that we are uh, to love everyone. And, and um, now that does not mean um, that you should um, be dishonest if, if you believe that something is a sin. You can't be dishonest about that and pretend that something is, is not a sin. Uh, but, but even those who sin and those who differ from us uh, in, in all sorts of ways, it's our responsibility to, to love those people. Yeah, and um, you know, one of our core values at True Life is that we're a place where it's okay to be okay. Or not, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And, and it's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Bible makes a distinction. And, of course, Ryan's right. We're to love everybody, treat everyone with love. But, you know, part of truly loving someone is speaking the truth. But the, the Bible definitely makes a, a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. We don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. And so the issue for a non-Christian is not their lifestyle. And so the song we sang, sang people are welcome to come as they are. Uh, we want to meet people where they are and help them become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now, you know, it's, it's a different story when someone is a Christian and a member of the church, and um, not if they're struggling with, you know, temptation or, you know, trying to figure some things out, especially if they're a teenager, that kind of thing. But we're talking about an, an adult who's living in open, 
unrepentant, you know, just rebellion toward God and whatever sin, be it this or something else, then, um, you know, that, that's an issue that we are to lovingly deal with as a church to try to bring them uh, to repentance. And so we treat everybody with love, but there is a distinction between how we treat uh, Christians and non-Christians church members and, and, and non-church members. But the ultimate point is for anyone to help them to find freedom in Christ. Uh, but we can't do that by pretending like things are okay when they're not okay. Okay. This next one, I hope this is working. Uh, this next one is, um, what do I do? And this, this may be a Lori question, so we may really have to call her on this one. <laughs> what do I do if I feel worthless Insignificant or ugly? Why am I even here? Well, um, you know, I, I would say for whoever asked this, maybe you should make an appointment with Lori. Uh, I, I'm guessing that it's a female that that, that asked the question. Um, it's, it, you know, it just sounds more like something a female would ask than than, than a guy. Um, it, <laughs> And, 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 you know, women tend to wrestle a lot with these kind of things. But uh, I would just encourage you, um, you know, to, to claim the truth of God's word. Of, you know, if you're a Christian, of who you are in Christ and, and just, you know, the lie, it's the lie of the enemy saying you're worthless and in, in, insignificant and lovely or ugly. The reality is that uh, you were made in the image of God and you were created with a purpose, and, 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 and God has a plan for your life. You're here to glorify him, but there's ways that he wants to use you. And uh, in, in Christ, I mean, Jesus died for you. That's, that's your value. He, he gave his all. That's how much God loves you. And, um, you know, you're a child of God. You're dearly beloved. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You have, you know, spiritual gifts. There's ways that he, he wants to, uh, to, to use you. And um, I, so I think a big part of it is, is claiming those truths, meditating on those things, uh, you know, maybe reminding yourself of those things every day. I think that's a, a general answer, but I'm, I'm sure there are some things that, that underlie uh, the question, and I don't know what kind of treatment or mistreatment has been there, what kind of hurts are there, and, um, you know, I, I'd encourage you to, to work through that with Lori or, uh, you know, small group leader, friend, you know, somebody that, 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 that you trust, but... Uh, just know that that's not how God feels about you. Can I add something to that just briefly? Um, it's really unfair. There's a lot of pressure on, on women and girls from our society to look a particular way. That, that's not on me. I can, I can be as ugly as mud. I don't know if mud is ugly. I can be, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, maybe it does to, to some extent, but, but uh, society certainly places a lot of pressure on on women, and and, uh, and my heart goes out to, to all of you because it's simply not fair for, for society to, to judge your worth or your value based on, on how, how you look. Uh, but uh, what Jimmy said is absolutely right. Uh, what society thinks about all of us is not the same thing that God thinks about all of us. And, and, and the truth is that, that every single human being is in God's image and our value is in that. And then, as Jimmy said, the fact that God has saved us in Christ, our value is in that as Christians. Additionally, 
And, and so, so he's absolutely right. Uh, try to think of yourself the way that God uh, thinks of you. And so some of us, that may mean thinking a little lower of ourselves than we think of ourselves. And, and for some of us, it means thinking more of ourselves than, 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 than we might think more naturally. And I will add, if I may, that uh, meeting with Lori is is a very, please do that if that is something that you're struggling with. Um, I, I make a joke that at, I have Lori on speed dial, and one of those reasons is because she's one of my best friends, but the other reason is because she has counseled me uh, on more than one thing and helped me through more than one thing. So um, I, I say that from personal experience, that if, if this is some of your struggle, do reach out. Her number is available. Uh, well, I don't know. We could probably put it up on the uh, on the thing. But her number is available on the back of the bulletin. We don't have those anymore. Where's her number? <laughs> contact, contact the church office. Um, and and it's very. It, uh, she's. You definitely want to do that. So okay, I'm going to move on to the next question. How do we respond to things like Black Lives Matter and the riots and police doing bad things? Okay, once again, this is one of the questions that came in in advance, and let me just say a little bit about it. If you want to add to it, Ryan, feel free to. Um, I kind of wrestled with, well, you know, I, so I'm doing a whole sermon series about this the month of August, so I, should I, I thought, well, should I, we answer this, but, um, you know, maybe somebody won't be watching the month of August. So uh, I, I want to maybe just say a little bit, give a preview maybe of the sermon series and um, try to address some of the specifics of this question and then if Ryan wants to add to that. So uh, first of all, I, I would say, and you know, we, we have taught this uh, many times here at True Life, but uh, racism is a sin, period. Uh, there is no biblical justification for it. Um, you know, we're all made in the image of God. There's one race, the human race. We're all of one blood, according to Acts chapter 17, descended from Adam and Eve. Jesus died for all of us. Je Jesus modeled this in his dealings with people. The, for example, uh, the, um, John 4, the Samaritan woman. Uh, you know, you, you've got Ephesians 2, that we're made one new man. Uh, in, in Christ. Um, there's one race. Um, you know, we have different shades of melanin because God is a very diverse and creative artist, to quote the great theologian Toby Mack. Uh, that, 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 that's, that's why we look the way that we look. Uh, you know, racism is a sin. Um, and, but unfortunately, the church in, in America, especially in the South, has played a role and bears some of the blame for the racial problems that we have had over our history as a nation because uh, through bad biblical interpretation, uh, it gave theological justification to cultural uh, biases, and that is a very toxic combination. And so we, we, you know, we have to own that that is part of our uh, past, but racism is a sin. Period. As far as, as Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, and, and this is where people uh, get divided. But I, I'll just tell you what I believe. I think, as far as making the statement Black Lives Matter, absolutely yes. 
especially right now. Some people push back and say all lives matter. Well, of course that's true biblically. But here's the way I look at it. If you have four kids, one of them has a bad bike wreck, and uh, you're taking the, the kid who had a bike wreck to the ER, and on that trip, you're encouraging that child, you know, saying a lot of nice things to them. You're focused on that child at that moment and not really saying the same things to your other kids. Does that mean that you love that kid more than the others? No, it just means you're, they're hurting at that moment, and so you're speaking in uh, to that. And there are people who are hurting that we can speak into their lives right now. And if uh, saying Black Lives Matter makes some people who are hurting feel affirmed and encouraged and listened to and loved, I'm all for that. Now, on the other hand, the organization Black Lives Matter, uh, if you study their beliefs, I don't think a Bible-believing Christian can affirm the organization. And I've uh, heard black evangelical pastors uh, say the same kind of thing. Um, you know, when it comes to the whole topic of justice, and this is what one of the messages in the series will be about, there can really be no justice apart from God. And I think one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God is actually the topic of uh, the reality of justice and the fact that we desire justice. And uh, I'll, I'll explain that uh, during uh, the, the course uh, of, of the series. But, you know, when you think about riots, uh, riots are, um, you know, we can do the right thing in the wrong way. And I think that's what riots are in a, in a nutshell. It's doing the right thing in a wrong way. In, in the wrong way, it's it's sinf, it's a sinful response to trying to correct an injustice. Um, you know, the Bible affirms Romans thirteen that the human government is God ordained, necessary for the curbing of of evil, and uh, so you know, still affirm. Uh, human government, the need for police, those kind of things. Is there need for reform? Yes. But uh, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and it's wrong to, um, you know, because of a few bad apples, and there's a few bad apples in every profession, it's wrong to invalidate an entire uh, profession because of that. At the same time, I would say, you know, this starts in the heart. It's individual and it's personal, but there are systemic issues that need to be addressed, and I think that's been a learning curve for me over the last few weeks uh, of realizing that more. So, um, you know, what can we do? Uh, how do we respond? Well, uh, something I've done is, is I have reached out to African-Americans that I know, you know, people in our church, made a new friendship at, at, at the gym, and I've just asked questions and listened. Like, what's your experience been with this? How do you feel about this? And it's a very eye-opening experience. People talk about the media, the media blowing. I think, forget the media, just talk to people and see what you learn and think about, uh, you know, how we respond. And, you know, I think we, we speak God's truth. We love everyone well, uh, you know, try to treat everyone well. We try to pursue justice. You know, I think one of the things I've been convicted of, I mean, I've always thought racism was wrong. But, you know, it's not enough just to say racism is wrong. How can, you actually, how can we actually make a difference? And it's making a difference uh, where we are. And so... That would be my five-minute answer, but uh, like I say, plan on spending five weeks in August talking about this. Do you have anything you want to add? No, I couldn't have said it better than that. Okay. Okay. Uh, next question. We learn God is love, and we live in a New Testament world where grace is over the law. 
Yet 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 states, Certain sins do not inherit the kingdom. Does a Christian who falters have no hope? I'll answer it. Okay, go for it. You can. Well, in in talking about those sins, it says you you were uh, such things, and it's talking about the transformation that Christ brings in in our lives. But, you know, it's not talking about that we commit those sins one time. It's talking about, uh, you know, an ongoing, unrepentant lifestyle. And and so, um, you know, our, our salvation is not... Based on, I mean, there's a balance here, and it's kind of maybe it's walking a tightrope a little bit because our salvation is not based on how good we are or how little we sin or what we do because we all fall short by that standard. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Salvation is actually admitting that our righteousness is like filthy rags and fleeing to Christ who alone justifies, who alone gives us his righteousness through the blood of of his cross. It's trusting in him and and, and him alone. And so it's not trying to justify ourselves by what we do and don't do. But at the same time, uh, it's well, when, when people try to justify themselves that way, it's legalism. But the opposite end of the spectrum is what can be called licentiousness or antinomianism. It's the idea, you know, that the law has no effect in our lives anymore. It's the law, you know, that grace covers everything, so let's go do whatever we want to do. And if you have that attitude, you're either not saved or you're in a bad position spiritually at that point. The balance is... We're saved by Christ. Christ is living in us. He's working through us. He's changing us by his spirit. So there's going to be difference. There's going to be a fruit. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but uh, you know, we're fighting the battle. When we sin, we confess it. We, we, we repent of it. And uh, you know, he's changing our lives. Once again, it doesn't mean we're never going to commit these things. It means that sin you know, does not have ultimate control over our lives anymore, but Jesus does. So there's some tension there. We're trying to find a balance from these extremes. And so I don't know if there's a perfect, easy answer because of that tension. But I think what I'm saying is you know, I, I like to talk about you know, falling in the ditch on either side of the road. You know, that's the path we walk on. The legalism of trying to justify ourselves or the antinomianism saying we, we're saved we got grace, we can do whatever, you know, that's falling in the ditch. That's a great answer. Um, I, I would also add that uh, for a long time I struggled with the question myself of whether, whether I was saved. How do I know that I'm saved? Uh, and that there's not a simple litmus test uh, for, for that, but I, I would say that if you are struggling with sin, that is a good sign. Because if you sin and simply accept that you're sinning and, and, and stop struggling to stop sinning, uh, that's not good. Then, then you should be worried that, that you know, perhaps your salvation isn't authentic. Uh, or if you don't think you have sinned, uh, if God is not convicting you of sin from time to time that, that you, you, you then struggle with, then um, that's not a good sign either. Uh, so, so if you are struggling with sin, I think that's a really good sign that, that uh, you're a Christian. That's a great point. Okay, I was all ready to, to give the next question, and you said something that made me think we had a piggyback one, which I'm going to have to find. But this is a question off of our online platform. Um, so it's, it says, what's your take on the phrase God-given right uh, when people use it to justify their actions? It's a good question. 
it's a question I wish I'd like to have a little more detail on maybe, but you have a thought? I, I get, I'm trying to think of God-given given right. Um, one thing that comes to mind as an example of, of what might, someone might call a God-given right is, is the right to life. Um, the Bible says that humans are created in the image of God, and as a result, uh, murder is a sin. And, and so I, I suppose that it's a God-given right by the virtue of God creating us in his image that, that we have a right to life, and no one has the right to take that away. Um, now, is it my God-given right to have ice cream this evening? Well, maybe it's my right as an American, uh, but, but I don't know that it's my God-given right as much as I enjoy, enjoy, enjoy ice cream. And, and I hope you can do better than that because that's not a great answer. I think, I think one that I've heard people say is like talking about right to bear arms. They would say that's a God-given right. And today, to, I mean, I feel like I've heard people say things like that in the past few weeks, past few months. So I, I don't know. That's just one that hits to me. I, it's, a, it's an American right. Yeah. But is that a God-given right? But I, I would say that there are people, I dare say there are people who have said that of late. Well, I think I would say in, in, in general, and, and I think, and, and this may be more general of an answer than they're looking for, but um, I think this is important in our society is to understand that all true rights come from God. Uh, and... Um, Human beings don't give those rights. Presidents don't. Legislative bodies don't. Courts certainly don't. And I think the reason that's important is when courts declare some kind of new right, you're taking away a right from somebody else. Uh, all true rights that come from God would, uh, would apply to everyone. And in, in you know, what Dr. Stokes said is, is true, that if you have the right to life, that means by, conversely, no one has the right to take that away uh, from you. And um, so, like with the abortion debate, uh, is that a child, a living human being who has the right to life? If, if so, that's a God-given right that a court or legislative body can't say that someone, for whatever reason, has the right to take that person's right to life away. So I think that's what I would say. Okay. In Matthew five forty four, it says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. If Satan is our enemy, are we supposed to love him? Yeah, I, I think that would be, uh, you know, taking that scripture out of context. I think, you know, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, um, you know, Jesus is clearly talking about how we um, relate to other people. Okay. Does the Bible teach, and we've sort of touched on this, but just maybe elaborate a little. Does the Bible teach once saved, always saved, or is it possible to fall away and lose your salvation? Well, I mean, we, we believe the Bible teaches if you're really saved that uh, God keeps you saved. And, I mean, I can speak to that, or if you want to say something, however you want to. Uh, sure. I, I can, I suppose I can say something, but, I, but uh, I would want to defer to you. Of course, different churches, even different Baptist churches, address this question uh, differently. Um, th there are warning passages in the Bible that address people who are in church and people who identify themselves as followers of Christ. And, and these, these warning passages, and I'm thinking of the book of Hebrews in particular, uh, these suggest that some of these people may not, in fact, be Christians or may fall away. 
Uh, on the other hand, there are passages in the Bible that suggest that if someone falls away, then that person never really was a Christian to begin with. And, and, uh, and, and that, that's what I believe uh, myself. Um, if there's an application point here, I think that we can trust that, that we can have faith that God is the one who preserves our salvation. Uh, but the other side of that is, is we do need to be careful and pursue God, continue to be holy, continue to struggle uh, with sins as they're revealed to us. Um, because if we don't do that, then it may turn out that we were not Christians to begin with. Uh, so the warning passages are things we should take seriously. It's not that the warning passages don't apply to us. Uh, we, we should uh, pursue God. Um, um, I, mean, I may defer let, to you at this point. Just, yeah, I'll, well, and I, I agree with everything that you said, and maybe just to piggyback on it. I mean, I think this is a, another one of these issues that there's definitely nuance to, but uh, I think Ryan captured that nuance in, in the sense that um, you know, the New Testament has a lot to say to uh, or about people who profess faith in Christ but don't possess genuine saving faith. There's a lot of warnings. You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that he'll say to some people, even though they said, Lord, Lord, and you know, did all these great things in his name, depart from me, I, I never knew you. And, uh, you know, you think about the parable of the sower. Uh, you have, you know, four people pictured there. And, uh, you know, depending on maybe exactly how you interpret it, out of the four, maybe one or two pictured, you know, genuine uh, believers. And so, um, you know, you, you can be in church. You can even have made some kind of profession of faith in Christ and not really uh, be saved. And, and so I think we have to wrestle with that. And, and, you know, and I've had doubts and questions about that at different times. You know, Paul said, 2 Corinthians, I think it's 13, 5, test yourselves as to whether or not that you're in uh, the faith. But at the same time, um, we, we, at True Life, I mean, we do believe that if you are genuinely saved, that you are eternally secure. Um, and, and the reason we believe that is because if I didn't cause myself to be saved, if Jesus did all of that, how can I cause myself to lose my salvation when the ground of my salvation has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him? Um, I think if you think you can lose your salvation, you don't really understand the grace of God that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And Scripture is very clear that we have contributed nothing to our salvation. And if we think that we are, that would be one of the signs that we're not actually saved. Uh, for by grace you've been saved, through faith, uh, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But, you know, beyond that, and I, you can debate proof text, but, you know, Jesus said, John chapter 10, he, he puts you in the Father's hand. No one can uh, pluck you out of the Father's hand. In the book of Jude, it says he's able to present you spotless before the throne of his glory to, to keep you uh, from falling. The Bible says in, in Hebrews that we're perfected forever by the blood of Christ. Perfected forever, not until the next time we sin, not until the next time uh, that we blow it. You say, well, what if you uh, deny Christ? Well, 
I think if you permanently deny him, it'd be a sign that you were never saved in the first place, uh, not that you lost your salvation. But, you know, Peter denied him, and he forgave him. I mean, he repented. It was temporary. Um, you know, even beyond that, like you read Romans chapter 8. To me, Romans chapter 8, and really, this is the entire book of Romans, but, you know, God chose us, he called us, he, he, he justified us, and he glorified us. And the tense of that in, in the Greek is, if you're called, if you're justified, the glorification is already as, as good as accomplished. Why? Because he keeps us. He keeps us. Um, and, and once again, the Bible tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but it's because it's God who works in you. Uh, it says he's going to complete in us. Uh, what he started in us until the day uh, of Jesus Christ. So um, can I keep myself saved? No, nah, that lasted about three minutes, maybe. Um, does he keep me saved? Yes, it's all by his grace. Good answer. Thanks. What is your perspective on totally unreached people groups through history? Would a God who is the essence of love and justice send what it is millions, if not billions, to hell for eternity who have never even had the opportunity to hear the gospel? And how do you contrast that with children in the age of accountability? Um, well, maybe I'll answer this just because of the whole pastoral thing again. But um, that's an emotionally tough question, but a biblically easy question to answer. Um, you know, when, when you read, particularly the book of Romans, the, the, the first couple of chapters of Romans, um, the Bible makes it clear that, uh, you know, there's, there's no one that's innocent. And it makes it clear that there's no one who has the capacity, obviously, you know, put a child, you know, baby, someone who is not able to understand uh, at all in, in, in a different category, but nobody's without a witness. The Bible talks about there's the witness of creation that's enough to condemn and enough to show our sinfulness and, and our need for a, a Savior. And uh, so, you know, we affirm that there's the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved than the name of, of Jesus. And, and so, um, you know, the, the Bible is also clear that our problem with God is not a lack of knowledge. Our, the problem, this is Romans 1, is the idolatry in our hearts and the fact that we want to be our own uh, gods and we reject the revelation that God has given us in creation and for some people also in Christ and, uh, you know, that we're all sinners and that the wrath of God abides upon us apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ in our lives. And uh, God is that holy and sin is that terrible. Um, you know, th that, that's the reality. And I know that's not a popular answer in our fluffy, feel-good way of thinking today, uh, but, but that is the reality. And, and practically, I think that should do two things. Uh, one, it should, if you're, if you're not a Christian, however good of a person you are outwardly, it leaves you without an excuse before God. And, and, and I hope you feel the weight of that. And, and, and you know, God would not have poured out all of his wrath upon his son on the cross if there was any other way or means of salvation. So 
I hope you will consider that. Second, if we're a Christian, you know, God has ordained the end, which is the salvation of the elect, but he's also ordained the means, which is the proclamation of the gospel to every tribe, people, tongue, and nation, and that's on us. And we need to take that seriously uh, as the, the calling of, of our lives. Um, you know, as far as children, and, uh, you know, this is debatable because there's not explicit biblical text on it, but implicitly, um, you know, you, you have the passage, child died, and he said, you know, that child can't come to me, but I'm going to go uh, to him, and so I would think that that points to heaven. You know, you have the passages about Jesus saying, let the little children come to me, do not forbid them, those kind of things. So, um, you know, I mean, we, we believe that God in his mercy, you know, covers their sin nature and, you know, receives them because they were incapable of having an understanding. Once again, that's debatable. That, that would be my understanding. But like, you know, we had a miscarriage and, and some of you have uh, dealt with that. And, um, you know, we believe, I don't know what, Exactly, it all means what he or she would look like, but uh, you know, we believe we have a child in heaven, you know, by the grace of God. And uh, like I say, I can't absolutely biblically prove that it would be a gray area, but I think there's some things that, that, that point that way. So, for the next question, I'm going to do something I've never done before as the person sitting in this seat, and I'm actually would like to answer this question if that's okay. Um, we are surrounded by teachings about sexual purity, such as true love waits. How am I, as a rape survivor, to have peace knowing I'm not pure? What I would say to this person is, before God, you are pure. Um, uh, as a, a victim of, of such a horrible crime, um, a horrible thing, that was something that was taken from you, not something that you gave. And our purity before God is a matter of our heart. And the world can tell you, and, and I'm sure that's why you, the word how can I have peace? Um, that's something that the world has a picture that they've painted for you. And um, I believe that before God, um, your purity is as intact as ever. And, and I think that you can, you can trust that because, like I said, it was something that was taken from you, not something that you gave. And it's a matter of your heart. And clearly your heart before, the, before God is, is to be pure. Um, I have a, a friend who... Um, along with her fiance, made a decision years ago to, to be sexually active before marriage. And, and at some point, they decided um, that that was not the right thing before God. And so they stopped that um, and, until their wedding night. Well, I believe that their wedding night was just as special because of the purity of their heart and their intention. So I, I just, I, you all are welcome to say something too. I don't mean to totally take over, but I just felt like that I no, I'm, I'm glad that. you did, and, and I think that would uh, be something else would certainly fall into the category of encouraging you to talk to, to, to Lori. But if, if I could say, maybe just add one thing to that. Um, there's an element of what Jesus accomplished on the cross that speaks to this, and it's one of the lesser-known uh, aspects of the atonement, but it's the doctrine of expiation. And you say, How, what in the world would this have to do with something like this. And just let me explain. You know, we talk a lot about propitiation, how Jesus atoned for our sins. But if you remember in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Leviticus, that um, they're, you know, they, they offered up the sacrifice to, to atone for the sins of the people. 
But then there was also there was a second goat, the scapegoat, that the priest laid his hands on to signify, you know, the, the transfer of their sin, and then that goat was sent out of the camp to signify their sin being put a, a, away. And I, and I just for this person and for all of us, I just want to remind us that Jesus is not only our propitiation who atoned for our sins. He is our expiation who takes those sins away, not just what we've done, but what has been done to us. And, um, you know, through the blood of Christ, we are clean and, 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 and pure. And, you know, the Bible gives all those images of being clothed in, in white robes and those kind of things to indicate that through the cross of Christ, that whatever we have done or whatever has been done to us, that we are free of de- defect, that we are free of stain, that uh, we are perfected forever by the blood uh, of Christ. And, of course, I certainly understand, at least on an intellectual level, of, you know, just the you know, the, the feelings that this person must be dealing with. But I just want you to know, in God's sight, that's how he sees you. There's one more question. Okay, perfect timing. It's a doozy. Maybe not perfect timing. That's the only I thing think we got to go. It's 1014. And, uh, <laughs> Is that a word, a doozy? Uh, it's long. It, it, might not, it might be an easy question. It's just going to be okay. hard for me to read. That's all all. Right. Maybe that's all. Considering the Canaanite genocide at Jericho, everything was destroyed while at Ai, Ai, Ai. how do you say it? Ai. Ai. I I don't know. He's the Old Testament scholar. Ask him. Ai, how do you say that? Hebrew is I. Oh, I got it right. Okay. I. (laughs) Plundering was allowed. Did Achan's sin of plundering at Jericho necessitate the destruction of his entire family? Does this contradict God's word that sons should not pay for the sins of the father? What changed between Jericho and I other than the Achan scenario? How does this contrast with, with God revealed in Christ? Is the solution revealed in a different hermeneutical understanding of the Israelites operating according to the culture and practices of the time and interpreting God revealed as a tribal people? That is definitely your question. Yes. So. <laughs> this is very pastoral, so I, I'm happy to, no, to this, defer to you. This is for the guy who went to Yale, so... Yeah, th- there were a lot of questions there. Uh-huh, there um, I told you it was a doozy. There, there were a lot of questions. Uh, cer- certainly w- what you have taking place in, in the book of Joshua is, is something that, that um, is easier to comprehend in the ancient historical uh, context than it is in our own context. Their practices, why they would, they would engage in certain activities at one city and not in another, and why they would engage in those activities at all, such as, as, as genocide. Um, What Achan did, why his whole family was held responsible for his sin, that seems really unjust to us. We're very, uh, in the 21st century West, and in the United States in particular, I think, we're very individualistic in the way that we think. Uh, But there are also uh, some ways in which we should think corporately. Uh, and, and that we have corporate responsibility for certain sins. And, and, and I don't want to, uh, to let the cat out of the bag or anything about uh, what you're going to do with the, the Black Lives Matter sermon series. But, but there, there are sins that have been committed corporately and for which we're corporately responsible. Uh, I've heard people say that, um, you know, I, I'm not a racist personally, so why should I be affected by all of this Black Lives Matter uh, stuff? 
Well, corporately as a nation, we sinned. And corporately as a nation, we are experiencing the consequences of that sin uh, right now. And, and for Aiken's family, he, he sinned, uh, but corporately uh, his family suffered for it. The same thing with Adam and Eve. Uh, you know, I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden personally, but humankind in, in the form of Adam and Eve were there. And, and so some of the consequences for that sin are still felt today. Uh, and, and now I've sinned myself as well, but, but I also experienced the consequences of the sins that happened before me. Uh, and so I think that's what we have going on in, in um, the case of Achan. It's some corporate responsibility where, where a family is held, responsibility, held responsible for the sin of the father. It's difficult theologically, but I think that helps us to understand some of that. Uh, why there would be a different policy at I from, from Jericho, I, I don't know. Uh, that's one of those questions that God had a reason for, for instructing the Israelites to do it one way at one place and to do it differently at another place. And I'm not sure that... I would have to look at a commentary on that to see if there's any, any reasoning for it. Uh, but it may be one of those things that simply God determined and, and, and didn't explain himself. Uh, there, I think there were about three or four other questions in there that I can't recall. Do I need to go back and read them? <laughs> a little past time. We probably better cut off there so we can tra- transition and clean that kind of thing. So let, let me just a couple things just to kind of wind us up. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in online. <clears throat> We're doing this again at 1045. If you've got a question and uh, want to watch online or, you know, it'll, it'll be on Facebook and YouTube uh, later on. But, um, you know, if there's something you want to talk about in between the services, come see one of us. Um, you know, if there's something you'd like to talk to Lori about, like we've referenced. I mean, if, if you just text, there's, there's her number. Uh, it's on the screen now. Or if you had Robin's number from before, if you send it to Robin, Robin will just forward it on to her. And uh, Robin is a counselor in a school, so she understands about confidentiality and all that kind of thing. Or, if, you know, if you need something else, there's some other way we can minister to you. Once again, text the 94,000 uh, and, you know, one of those uh, things that are on the screen there. And, uh, you know, we'd love to follow up with you. But uh, thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Stokes. Let's give him a hand and show him our appreciation. I'm really glad that God has uh, brought him to Carson Newman and thankful for what the Lord's doing there. Uh, Let me close this in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. And remember, if you're here in the room about getting your kids, clearing out quickly so we can clean, transition, uh, those kind of things. Uh, Father, I I thank you for this day and this time. I pray that you would... uh, just use these Christ in pointing people uh, to him and ministering to people. Lord, uh, just speak to each of us by your spirit. Ground us in your truth. Uh, grow us in our faith in, in, in you. Lord, just work in our lives. And God, I mean, some of these questions are just real life hurts and pains and issues. And so, God, we pray for healing and just comfort and peace and strength uh, where, where it's needed. God, just take control of us and, and, and bring about your will, Lord. Give us grace and strength, uh, peace right now, just in the middle of everything that's going on. Lord, we thank you that you love us, and uh, we thank you for the gift of your Son and for all the ways that we're blessed in him. And Jesus, we pray these things in your great name. Amen. Okay, first question. What is backsliding... And is it a real thing for a believer? Well, 
I'll start out on this one and add in. You can add in if you want to. I, th- I think... You're uh, the backsliding expert, is that... Uh, well... <laughs> Uh-oh. I've done it more than I would care to admit, maybe, but... Uh, I think this probably even fits with some of the questions, maybe a couple of the questions from the first service. But um, I don't know that the New Testament, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the New Testament uses the term backsliding. I think it's in the Old Testament. It tends to be more corporate than uh, individual. But uh, I think understood correctly, probably the concept is, is taught in the New Testament. I think it would be the idea that our spiritual... Uh, journey, our walk with Christ is not necessarily one of just unbroken progress. You know, we're not always up and to the right uh, spiritually. We can certainly be up and down. We can have some struggles. Um, you know, maybe there's sin that we let uh, creep in. Or uh, so, in in the sense of us maybe going backwards spiritually for a time, us not walking with the Lord like we should. I think uh, backsliding is a, it can be a, you know, a real thing. When I said properly understood, I think just understand that, uh, like, some people talk about carnal Christians. Now, we can act carnally, but I don't think, like, and, and carnal means worldly or fleshly. Uh, I, I think, you know, if, if there's no fruit, if you don't ever walk with the Lord, even if you made a profession of faith or whatever, you know, just because you pray a prayer or something like that, if there's, if there's no change, I would question if there's genuine salvation there. You know, also, you know, we don't believe that backsliding would mean you know, that you actually lose your salvation if you're genuinely saved. I think we can struggle, but you know, the Holy Spirit's going to work in us. He's going to convict us. And you know, we may be up and down, but you know, the Bible says, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you know, if we backslide, we, we should confess, ask his forgiveness, you know, repent, ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, seek the Lord. So, you know, I think there's some up and down, maybe some going backward in that sense, but not in the sense of losing our salvation or not in the sense that if we always live, you know, just away from the Lord, that we can confidently, um, you know, profess to be genuinely saved. I don't have anything to add. That's a great answer. Okay. 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 Question number, this is going really fast already. Wow. Well, that's probably good. Okay, John fourteen twelve says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Has anyone ever done greater things than Christ did? I would just say no individual has, obviously, but you know, the way I would understand that is he's not talking about qualitatively, he's talking about quantitatively. And you know, if you think about Christ working through his church by the Holy Spirit, you know, God has done, you think of all the people who have been saved, all the miracles that have happened, just the expansion of the kingdom, the progress of the gospel uh, since Jesus left the earth. And so I think in that sense, that's how greater things have been done. Christ working through his church, like I said, the amount of things, not quantitative, not qualitative. That'd be my understanding. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I haven't done greater things than Jesus, I don't think, personally. Uh, but uh, there's, there's this passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I'm going to the Father, and it's a good thing for you that I'm going to the Father, because if I don't go to the Father, then the Holy Spirit can't come to you. And, and what Jesus implies there is that in some way it's better for us to have the Holy Spirit with us right now than for Jesus to have remained 
with us. And so perhaps it relates to that. Uh, what God is doing through uh, the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is even greater than what he was accomplishing in certain respects uh, by Jesus being present here. Okay. Question number three. In his seminal work, A Brief History of Time, Stephen Hawking penned these words. A medium-sized planet orbiting around an average star in the outer suburbs of an ordinary spiral galaxy, which is itself only one of a million, million galaxies in the observable universe, yet the strong anthropic principle would claim that this whole vast construction exists simply for our sake. This is very hard to believe. Could you speak to that? I think it's above my pay grade, but uh, <laughs> now I'm glad this is one of these that came in in advance, but go first if you'd like to. Sure. Uh, but by the way, thanks for having me here. It's great to be here and, and to be on a panel with, with such a, a godly and thoughtful pastor that you guys have. Y'all are really blessed to have, have Jimmy as your pastor. Uh, and uh, as far as this question goes, now I'm not one that typically endorses what Stephen Hawking says, uh, but in a sense, I think I would agree with his comment. Uh, the fact that the universe is so great that it cannot be all about us is absolutely true. Uh, I, I think it's about God. And, and uh, the fact that the universe is so magnificent points to the fact that there's an even more magnificent, powerful, wise uh, God who's really the center of it and, and for whom all of this exists. Uh, so I think, although I would not agree with, with Stephen Hawking about a lot of what he says, uh, that simple quote is one that I think I can agree with because it really is about God. Uh, maybe let me, which uh, I think that's a great way to look at it. Let me come at it from a little different angle, though. First, if you like what the anthropic principle is, here's how Chuck Colson defines it. He says that the anthropic principle states that the physical structure of the universe is exactly what it must be in order to support life. That, that, that's what it, 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 you know, it actually is. Now, I think, I think this is one of these things where uh, people take the same evidence and come to different conclusions. Uh, Stephen Hawking takes this evidence and comes to the conclusion that it points toward their not being a god. But on the other hand, Dr. Francis Collins, who's the director of the Human Genome Project and who has written about this extensively, takes the same evidence and, 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 and comes to the conclusion, well, it does point toward God. And, and this is what he says. He says there are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or, or, or people. And uh, so what, what he's ultimately saying, and what makes sense to me, for whatever that's worth on a scientific question, is to me that very clearly points to the evidence for intelligent design. That, um, you know, that kind of precision, that kind of fine-tuning, uh, it's just hard for me to grasp that that could have come from randomness and chaos and, and, and that kind of thing. And really, even beyond that, um, and I think this not exactly, but it, it, it connects, 
that, uh, you know, Lee Strobel says in order to accept Darwinism, uh, that we have to believe that nothing produces everything, non-life produces life, randomness produces fine-tuning, which would specifically speak to this question, chaos produces information, which would also speak to it, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. And so, you know, I think when you look at just the world around us and what we know about it, including the anthropic principle, it would, it, it, it would point to there being uh, intelligent design, which would point to there being a uh, designer. And, and like Ryan said, when you think about the, the grandeur and the, the, the majesty, the, just how incredible the universe is, um, you know, scientists would say the universe isn't eternal because of the Big Bang, you know, and it couldn't have come from nothing. And so there must be something, someone out there who is incredibly powerful and brilliant and great and, uh, you know, mighty and, uh, you know, and intelligent to be able to design all of this. And, and that's how I look at it. Be sure and keep those questions coming. All right, our next question. Does, some, does struggling with a sin like homosexuality mean I'm less of a Christian or not even saved? Well, um, and once again, this is one of the questions that came in in advance. And, um, and, and, and what, I, what I would say is, I mean, I'll come back to the homosexuality part of it in a minute, but just for a minute, because I think that can make it emotionally charged. Let's take the word homosexuality out and just say, does struggling with a sin mean I'm less of a Christian or not even saved? And um, I think like a lot of questions, the, the answer is kind of nuanced. And, and it, even some of it comes from even what's meant by the question. Are we talking about, you know, are you tempted uh, do you give into it occasionally? Do you just say, you know, whatever, I'm going to do what I want to do? Uh, I, I think those distinctions um, speak to the answer to, to a degree. Um, you know, it's not a sin to be tempted. We're all tempted, and temptation's temptation. You know, one temptation is not better or worse than, than, than the other. Um, I said this, quoted this in a sermon recently, but... Uh, you know, Billy Graham used to say, there's no virtue in resisting a temptation that's not a temptation to you. Um, so, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with being tempted. It's what do we do with it? So, uh, so, okay, what if it's not that? What if, you know, you actually commit a particular sin? Uh, well, you know, we, we all sin. That in and of itself doesn't mean uh, that you're not saved. You know, what if a sin is dominating your life, though? And so, you know, what, what I would say is that, you know, Christ transforms our lives. The evidence of being a Christian is not perfection. It's a conviction of sin. It's a hatred of sin. It's a repentance of sin. It's a desire to overcome sin. You know, it's fighting uh, battle with uh, sin. Um, you know, those are, uh, you know, it's progress in it, uh, in, in holiness. Those are the kind of things that are evidence of being a, a genuine Christian. So, uh, you know, you shouldn't condemn yourself over te uh, temptation, but you shouldn't justify uh, your sin either. If you're saved, you know, we're to put on the armor of God, we're to confess, we're to repent, uh, we're to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, we're to fight the battle, 
in, in, in Christ's power. Uh, that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Um, but if, if I could speak just directly to the homosexuality issue, um, and like I said, this, this is one of the questions that came in in advance. And, but, you know, on Father's Day, I preached a message about a, a broken family. And um, in that message, I had a couple of illustrations in my notes that I didn't use for time's sake. But I want to share one of them now because I think it really speaks to this question. So uh, just want to read this to you. It's three or four paragraphs. Um, it says, in a recent interview, popular blogger Jen Hatmaker was asked, do you think a LB, LGBT relationship can be holy? And this is her answer. She said, I do, and my views here are tender. Now listen to the whole thing. She said, this is a very nuanced conversation, and it's hard to nail down in one sitting. I've seen too much pain and rejection at the intersection of the gay community and the church. Every believer that witnesses that much overwhelming sorrow should be tender enough to do some hard work here. But former lesbian Rosaria Butterfield reproved Hatmaker for this tenderness that leaves people in sin. And this is what she said. She said, if, if this were 1999, the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved, instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a bomb of Gilead. Uh, I would have thought, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. I can, yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, which was queer theory and English literature and culture, and in my church. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. Today I hear Jen's words and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin nature uh, deceives us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. It's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. And it applies to homosexuality, but just take that word out and apply it to any sin. And what she said is true. The issue is, do we love Jesus or do we love our sin? And are we willing, by the power of Christ, uh, to lay down our sin for the greater love and affection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, the next question. Um, what do I do if I feel worthless, insignificant, or ugly? Why am I even here? Well, um, I think this would have been the kind of question that Lori would have probably answered and... Uh, 
you know, my guess is it came from a female and, uh, you know, maybe the kind of thing you want to talk to her about or talk to a female friend about. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what underlies the question, what, you know, pain or hurt or, um, you know, struggle may be there. And so, um, you know, I would just kind of want to answer it more generally and think that, um, you know, whatever the, the particular issue is, you, you know, needs to be, or, or particular thing that underlies it needs, needs to be worked out with someone you can trust, needs to be talked through. But I guess what I found from having a wife for 30 years and having a couple of daughters and uh, working with the ladies that we have on staff, that women, even who really you know, seemingly have it together, tend to second-guess themselves and uh, underestimate themselves and that seems like have a lot of, um, I don't know, just doubts swirling around in their minds that's kind of hard for me to understand even. I think some of that's fed by, you know, society that puts all these uh, expectations on women, uh, you know, to do everything and be everything and look a certain way and all these kind of things. So, um, you know, what I would say for however unqualified I may be to speak to that issue as a man, that, you know, for all of us, uh, one of the key things to our spiritual, emotional, mental health is how we see ourselves. And Josh McDowell used to say that a healthy self-image is seeing ourselves like Jesus sees us, uh, nothing less or nothing more. Because to see ourselves higher than how he sees us is pride. To see ourselves lower than how he sees us, uh, you know, is insecurity that doesn't really honor the Lord either. And so, you know, how does God see us? Well, you know, God sees everyone as a person made in his image that simply because we're made in his image has worth and value and dignity that he cares about, you know, under common grace, because the Bible says God makes the sun to shine, the rain to come on the just and the unjust. Uh, you know, if we're in Christ, uh, you know, we've received saving grace. Uh, you know, Jesus died for your sins. That's how much God values you. And in Christ, you are a child of God. You're beloved. Uh, you're accepted. You're forgiven. You're set free. You're made new. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You're gifted to serve the Lord. Uh, you're here to glorify the Lord. Uh, you know, your life has purpose and meaning. There is a plan that God has for you. And it's not even just about the here and now. It's about eternity. And... Um, so whatever you've been through, wherever you are, that's how God sees you, and he wants you to see yourself in the way that he sees you. And so, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that could be really helpful would just be to meditate on Scripture and those kind of truths and just, you know, claim those things, you know, maybe repeat them to yourself and try to, uh, you know, let God's Word permeates your thinking instead of what the world is saying to you. Because really, you know, those kind of things that you don't have a purpose or you're ugly or insignificant or don't have value, those are really Satan's lies that come through other people and the media, the world. Uh, they're, they're not the truth of God. Ron, did you want to add anything to that? Sure. A lot of times when I get a question... Uh, it can be a, a really theological question or a, a question about the history of the Bible, which I'm, I'm more qualified to answer than, than some other questions. 
sometimes when I get a theological question, however, it's, it's not coming from an intellectual place. It's coming from more of a visceral or emotional place. And, and, and I, I suspect that maybe this question is one that's, that's very emotionally rooted. And, and so I would echo what Jimmy says about speaking with Lori. That may be that, um, that, uh, that she would really be able to help you, you think about some of these biblical passages and concepts that, that Jimmy mentioned uh, in a way that would, would be healing for you. So the number's on the screen there for um, if we want to make that appointment too. So, um, so um, next question. Sorry. I get easily distracted. I listen to it and then I get all lost here. Um, okay. How are we supposed to respond to Black Lives Matter and the riots and to police doing bad things? We as in Christians. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> before we dive into that, just encourage you, if you have questions, send them in. Hell, if you would put uh, Robin's number back. Yeah, so that's, that's the number that you could send it to. So, um, you know, once again, this is one of the ones that came in early, and I thought, well, you know, should I even answer this? Because, and I'll go ahead and plug this again, you know, doing an entire sermon series on this in the month of August. And um, so, um, you know, I thought, should I even answer this? I'm like, well, you know, I don't know who's going to listen when. So what I'm going to do is maybe just say a little bit about this and then let Ryan piggyback on it and just kind of say a few things. Hopefully it will uh, kind of whet your appetite a little bit uh, for the series. But uh, obviously these are, um, you know, some of the, the biggest questions that are being uh, discussed in our society today. And, um, you know, even in trying to tackle them in five weeks will be hard, much less answering in five minutes here. But l- let me just say a few basic things, I guess, and then build off that in, in, in the series. First of all, uh, racism is sin, period. If, if you believe God's word, I, I don't see any way around that. The Bible tells us that we're all made in the image of God. Uh, we're of one blood that we all descend back to Adam and Eve. So I believe that there's one race, the human race, with different shades uh, of melanin because God is a very diverse and creative artist, to quote the great theologian Toby Mac. Uh, even, even beyond that, um, you know, God loves everybody. The Bible says he's no respecter of persons. Uh, Jesus modeled uh, just, you know, accepting different people in, in, in many different ways. Maybe a primary passage would be in, in John 4 when, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. But, uh, and, they, and, and the Jews would normally go around Samaria to get to Galilee, but Jesus walked through it because he had a divine appointment to encounter a Samaritan woman who was not just a Samaritan, she was seemingly a reject in her own uh, community, but Jesus loved this lady and led her to saving faith in himself. That's how you see him interacting with people. The Bible says, how can we say that we love God whom we haven't seen if we don't love our brother that we have seen? You know, there's a parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus taught that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that everyone uh, is our neighbor. There's, there's the cross. There's Ephesians 2 where, uh, you know, through the cross, we're reconciled together in Christ, Jew and Gentile, as one uh, new humanity. So 
you know, racism is a, a, a sin. And, um, you know, we've consistently taught that at True Life. But uh, part of the issue with everything that has gone on in our society, and if you look at the history of racism in the United States, particularly in the South, is that the church has been part of the problem, if we're honest. Because um, there are you know, many pastors down through the years who have taught things uh, that provided a theological justification for slavery, and then racism, segregation, those kind of things. Uh, that are not really biblical, they're a misinterpretation of Scripture. But when you take something where there's already an existing cultural bias and you add a theological justification to it, that becomes very powerful in a destructive type way. And so I think that's part of the reason why the church needs to speak very clearly to this now. Uh, as far as the Black Lives Matter issue, um, so let me make a distinction here. As far as the, the statement Black Lives Matter, uh, I would completely affirm saying that. As far as the organization Black Lives Matter, uh, I would not affirm that because their belief statement would not line up with uh, biblical Christianity. Um, now, And of course, that's the kind of statement that can get you shot at from both directions, I, I, I guess. But you know, some people are like, well, why would you say black lives matter? Don't all lives matter? Well, of course all lives matter. That's what I've just said in answering a couple of different questions because we're all made in the image of God and have value and worth and dignity and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but if saying black lives matter right now is going to help people who are hurting to feel loved and encouraged and listened to and understood and identified with, uh, my thought would be, why would we not say that? And kind of maybe an illustration I would use, like if you have four kids and uh, you love them all, value them all equally, and you try to let them know that, but in a given moment, let's say one of your kids has a, bi ba a bad, if I can talk, bad bike accident, and you have to take him to the ER. And you, so you pile up all your uh, kids in the van, you're driving everybody to the ER, and on that drive to the ER, you're not focused on three of your kids, you're focused on your one child who is hurting, and you're trying to encourage him and tell him how much you love him and, you know, speak positively and just, you know, lift him up. Uh, does that mean you don't care about the other kids? You don't think everybody matters? Are uh, you doing something, uh, you know, wrong, harmful to your other kids? I don't think so. I think everybody would understand in that moment you're addressing a situation and encouraging someone who's hurting. And I think that's what we are, are doing if we say black lives matter in this particular uh, moment. Uh, you know, the issue with the organization would be, and I, I'm not saying anything that other evangelical African-American pastors like Tony Evans and Vody Bauckham and people like that aren't saying, but, um, you know, the, the, the agenda, the belief system of Black Lives Matter goes beyond just uh, racial equity and those kind of things and, and, and just gets into some other things that would clearly be outside uh, of Scripture. I think the church has a lot to say to this issue. 
Um, you know, as we talk about social justice, um, and this is one of the things I'll try to bring out in, in, in the series, the issue is not really social justice. The issue is justice. And there is no justice apart from God. You can't even have the concept of justice, I believe, in a logically coherent way if you take God out of the equation. I think one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God is this innate desire for justice that we have within us. You say, why would I say that? Well, there's two basic reasons. Number one, if, um, if we don't have a soul, why would we have this innate desire for justice? If we have a soul, there has to be a God because a soul is not something that can evolve because it's immaterial and not material. A second reason I think it points to the existence of God is because for there to be justice, Truly, there has to be an absolute standard of right and wrong. So there has to be a lawgiver who can actually declare what is right and wrong, which actually leads us back to God. And so I think, um, you know, if, if we're going to speak of justice, we have to do it uh, biblically. And, and I guess the last part of the question is, uh, well, there's the question about riots, the police doing bad things. Uh, I would say riots are a sinful response to unjust behavior. Uh, I think they maybe are an example. I mean, I know there's different agendas in there, but let's just say it's someone who is, you know, is just upset about this, got angry, you know, whatever. I think it's, you know, we can, we can do the right thing in the wrong way. And it's the right thing to stand up for racial justice, rioting would be a wrong, unbiblical way uh, to do that. Um, we, we do the same kind of thing on, on just a lesser scale. Uh, maybe this is an example from my childhood. Uh, one time I was playing in a baseball game, and uh, it was like a 3-2 count. The pitcher pitched. The ball literally bounced up there. I mean, it literally hit home plate. You know, it's in the dirt. Um, but the umpire called it strike three. He was wrong. It was unjust. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. Uh, I turned around and told him he was blind. Uh, he threw me out of the game. Uh, so uh, was I right in a sense? Yeah, he was wrong, but uh, it was a wrong way to handle it. It was a wrong response. It was a sinful response to an unfair situation. And that's a, maybe a silly example but that, I think, shows that we have this innate desire for, for justice, right? I mean, you'd be watching a ball game and screaming at the TV because you think something's not fair. Uh, you'd be, you know, watching a TV show, and it's, you know, it's fictional, it's not even real, but you're getting mad over the way somebody's being treated, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's because we have this innate desire for, uh, for justice, but in our sinfulness, we can pervert that and, and use it in, in the wrong way sometimes. Um, you know, the Scripture, Romans 13, many places, affirms the need for human government. Now, can human government function unjustly? Absolutely. Should that be corrected? Absolutely. Um, you know, should police officers who wrongly use their authority uh, mistreat people like we've seen be prosecuted? Absolutely. Does that do away for the need for police? Absolutely not. Does that make all police officers bad? 
Absolutely not. Um, I think a lot of this is personal, but some of it is systemic, and those kind of things need to be addressed. So what do we do? I think we ought to listen to people. Um, you know, one of the things I've done after the George Floyd murder was just started talking to African-Americans that I know, or even, you know, struck up a conversation, just made a new friend at the gym, or people in our church, uh, those kind of things, and just ask them, what's their experience been with racism? How has this affected you? What do you think about what's going on? And, um, you know, uh, a lot of times we, you know, blame stuff on the media or we talk about everything being politicized, those kind of things. Get past that. Just talk to people you know and see what they say. And it's very eye-opening. And um, I think we really need to consider what people have experienced. Uh, we need to affirm the biblical truth. We need to love everyone, treat everyone the right way. We need to do justice in our lives. And, and, and um, you know, that applies in a lot of ways. That's, part of that's just meaning living with integrity. Uh, you know, living justly is... Uh, doing your work the right way, or if you're uh, a business owner, treating your employees the right way, treating your customers the right way. Uh, it, it's being honest. I mean, there's a lot of ways this applies, and um, it applies in so many spheres of life. I mean, abortion is unjust. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So I'm not saying focus on one single issue. But it is an issue that's before us, and I think God's called his church to make a difference in it. Uh, do, do we have time, or do we need yes. to move on? Yes, no, you can go ahead. Okay, sure. Uh, and, and I don't want to infringe on, on Jimmy's sermon series, which sounds like it's going to be excellent uh, based on what you've been saying here this morning. Um, this issue, the whole, uh, the, the riots, the obviously the the murders of Ahmed Arbery and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, these others, ha have really brought sorrow to my life. Uh, unlike other things I've experienced, maybe September 11th, you know, 2001, maybe that's comparable. I I've really been been um, sorrowed by 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 these things, and part of it is that I, I have friends, not just Facebook friends, but but real friends who are on both sides of this issue, friends who are um, African American, involved in Black Lives Matter, or identify uh, with, with the, the the goals of that organization, uh, and, and and who perceive what has happened as as just the latest installment in a long line, a long history of violence. Uh, unjust violence against African Americans. Uh, I, I have uh, other friends who really don't understand why are people so upset about this, uh, and and I have then again friends on the other side who don't understand why the others don't understand, and 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 that just brings me a whole lot of grief that we aren't able to understand one another. And and as Christians, I think it's our duty uh, to try to understand the people uh, whose positions we we have a hard time. Understanding, and, and if we want to respond biblically to this situation, I think we have to understand exactly what the situation is to try to appreciate the, the viewpoints of others so we know how to uh, respond to them. I would also say that uh, it may not all be about us or our own rights personally, and I'm speaking here now as, as a, a white man. Uh, it may not be about what I can 
accomplished for myself or defending my own rights or what I think is just toward me. Uh, it, it's my responsibility to reconcile my relationships with, with others. And, and I need to do what it takes to, to accomplish that reconciliation. Of course, ultimate reconciliation only comes uh, through Christ. Uh, but right now I need to do what's, whatever is within my power to accomplish reconciliation. Um, and so I'd encourage everyone, uh, whatever side of the issue uh, you're on uh, in this matter, to, to look to understand others and to do what it takes to, for us to come together as a society and, and certainly as a church. Okay. Um, the next question, Jews believe in the Messiah, but they are still waiting on the Messiah to come. Since they don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, what happens to Jews at death? You want to tackle this one? I've been talking more than you. The um, this is similar to a question we got in the last time. Last time there was a question about uh, what about folks who've never heard the gospel or or uh, children. According to uh, the Bible, there is salvation, uh, and, and salvation comes only through faith in Christ. Um, the Bible says that some some Jews have have placed their faith in, in Christ and, and others haven't. Um, so at, at death, I, I would say that Jews are judged just like anyone else is judged, the same way that Americans are judged or Germans are judged or uh, Indians are judged. Uh, we're judged on the basis of whether we've placed our, our faith in Christ or not. Um, Seems like I was going to say one more thing along those lines. Uh, would you like to add anything to that? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, biblical, because we know God's, you know, the Jews, you know, God's chosen people, Gentiles grafted into the church. But, you know, the Bible is also very clear that just because the Jews were God's chosen people and, you know, he, he blessed them and, and chose to bring the Messiah through them and so on and so forth, that in, in, in no way um, diminishes the need for any individual person, including a, a Jewish person, to you know, trust Jesus. And, um, you know, and, and of course, you know, Paul talked about how just all the blessings and benefits and everything uh, you know, that they had by being Jewish. And so really, the, the Bible also teaches us that the more you know, knowledge that we have, the more God blesses us, uh, it really gives us a greater accountability when, when, when it's all said and done. And, and so, uh, I, you know, I, I think that may be sometimes can, what be, can be a little confusing about it because we know the Jews are God's chosen people. I think as long as we understand, you know, as we see them as a people, but un understand that that, you know, for individual people, the only way to God is, is through uh, Jesus. You know, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Right. If I can add one more, it occurred to me that the other thing I wanted to add to that uh, the, uh, and this goes back to the, is this a theological question at heart or is, is this theological question an emotional question at heart? And, and I can certainly perceive how this would be an emotional question. And the same for the question at the, the last of us. What about people who haven't heard, heard, heard of Christ and how heartbreaking that is to, to uh, think that so many people are going to spend eternity apart uh, from God? And uh, what I would say to that as far as an emotional answer goes is is we can trust that God is just 
uh, God is not going to do anything unjust. And it's difficult to understand uh, what the Bible teaches at times or why the Bible teaches what it does teach. Uh, but we can always trust that God is just and, and need not worry that God is going to do anything that would be unfair or unjust. Okay, next question. Um, in Jude one twenty one, um, and this is a question, we had a question first service about can you lose your salvation, but this is a little bit different take on that, which I think is a really really well, uh, well-written question here. In Jude one twenty one, the scripture says to keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal salvation. I'm convinced that you cannot lose salvation as it is God who saves. But how do I come to terms with this when talking to a friend that believes the opposite? I'm not sure that I understood the question. It has to do with someone who believes... If someone believes that they, they well, cannot well, lose their we, salvation. We read the whole thing again. Sure. In Jude one twenty one, the scripture says, To keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto, unto eternal salvation. And this person says, I am convinced that you cannot lose salvation, as it is God who saves. But how do I come to terms with this when talking to a friend that believes the opposite? Like, how do I... Convince my friend of that. Okay. Well, um, let me, let me kind of just kind of read the whole section there. Verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Uh, amen. And, and so I think this is an example of something that you... Um, see uh, a lot in the New Testament in, in various passages about how our salvation is secure in Christ if it's genuine, but there's all these warning passages at the same time uh, against um, you know, being a false believer uh, or you know, falling away or uh, you know, all these kind of things. And, and so it's like we're, we're, our responsibility is to you know, pursue Christ, seek him, trust him, walk with him, all these kind of things, at the same time knowing that he's able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless. That, you know, Jesus said, I place you in my Father's hand, you know, John 10, no one can pluck you out of his hand. He said he gives us eternal life. He says, you know, he completes the work that he began in us until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, in Hebrews it says that we're perfected forever by the blood of Christ. And so, you know, our confidence is in not ourselves, but in the finished work of Christ. But we also know, like Paul said in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to test yourselves as to whether or not you're in the faith or not. And so, you know, we have to examine our hearts uh, to make sure it's genuine. You know, a lot of times you'll hear the, the phrase, once saved, always saved. Uh, I think it's better to say, if saved, always uh, saved, because Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he'll say to some, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers uh, of iniquity. And so um, I think, you know, we're to be challenged um, to not be lax in our spiritual growth, 
but also be challenged at the same time to rest in, rely on Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. Good answer. Good. You go ahead. Oh, oh, sure, sure. I, um, if, if someone believes that, that um, once saved, always saved, uh, and uses that as an excuse not to walk with God, then, then as, as Jimmy said, that person probably wasn't ever saved uh, to begin with. So if, if we take that approach to it, that, that I, I'm saved, I, I believe that I'm saved, but if I don't continue to walk with God, then, then perhaps I'm not saved. Or on the other hand, we'd have someone who says, well, I believe that I'm saved, but if I do not continue to walk with God, then I would lose my salvation. There is a distinction there, and, and it's not an unimportant distinction, but on the other hand, we're kind of splitting hairs too. Both of these people agree uh, that they are saved by faith in Christ, uh, but they have to persevere in that faith in Christ if they, uh, if they, you know, if their salvation is going to turn out to be authentic in the end. And, and so I don't want to downplay the importance of that distinction because on the one hand, uh, one, of, one of those says that God is the one who's preserving me, and the other one perhaps says that, well, I, I'm playing more of a role myself in preserving that. Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of agreement there. Uh, and, and so I think that it's also helpful to focus on on that agreement and, and look at where we have common ground and then work out the minutia and try to persuade the person of why, why your position may be just a little better uh, when you look at various, uh, various biblical texts, the ones that Jimmy cited a little earlier. Yeah, I think sometimes what can be scary is if someone says, well, you know, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I prayed a prayer, uh, you know, whenever, and it, it seems to be making no difference in their life at, at all. You know, that would be uh, concerning. I, I think at the same time, you know, I think sometimes people are like, if you ever question your salvation, does that mean it's not real? And I, I don't think that's the case either. I've questioned mine. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, we have to wrestle, you know, with, do I really believe? Am I serious about this? But I think ultimately, if it's real, it, we're going to continue to just run back to Jesus and to the cross, knowing our insufficiency, knowing our inability, and more and more relying on him, resting in him, knowing that that's really all I have to offer God is the righteousness of Christ. Um, the same person had a kind of a piggyback question that you've kind of answered, but I just want to see if there's anything you would add to. They said, you know, do you believe that someone um, who is saved could actually walk away from God? They could say, done with it, walking away, not, not saved anymore. My answer would be is no, not permanently. I mean, I think someone could temporarily do that, but if they're saved, God's going to bring them back. And if they uh, did that permanently, you know, it, I mean, John talked about if those who went out from uh, among us, it's because they were never uh, among us. And uh, I think it would be a sign that there was never really genuine savings faith there in the first place. But I think that's something that people could look at differently. So do you have a different take on that? No, that, that's uh, pretty much my take as well. Uh, I, I think that if someone has been regenerated, someone has been born again, uh, so to speak, that that person has been transformed permanently uh, by God. However, can someone be a church member? Uh, can someone pray to God? Can someone call him or herself a Christian? Uh, can someone even be involved in ministry or write Christian books and then walk away from God permanently? Yes, yes. 
all of us can probably think of examples of that from the last 12 months. Um, but can someone truly be born again, regenerated by God and transformed uh, and then fall away from the faith? Uh, and my answer would be no. Okay. What is your perspective on biblical inerrancy? Is a literal interpretation of primary importance or an interpretation in light of the culture and time that was prone to mythicizing historical nuggets? If literal, how should we understand challenges of scientific or logical challenges of all the animals in Noah's Ark or archaeological challenges of the biblical account of the fall of Jericho? Well, that's, uh, that's a foundational question. And... Um, you know, at, at True Life, and I believe this is primary doctrine, not secondary doctrine, but for our church, we would, we would affirm Scripture as inspired, uh, inerrant, uh, uh, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient. And um, as far as, was the phrase literal interpretation? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, if I could kind of reframe the question a little bit, and, and I, th I think this is something that's very commonly said, but this is an important distinction. What we believe is that the truth is literal. Uh, we believe in uh, grammatical historical interpretation where the Bible means what God meant it to mean and you let it speak for itself. But at the, at the same time, that doesn't uh, diminish the fact that there are passages that are prescriptive, there's passages that are descriptive, there's historical passages, there's poetic passages, there's um, uh, allegorical passages, there's uh, you know, letters that were written to the church, there's uh, you know, the, the gospels, which you know, the story of Jesus particularly focused on the last week. I mean, there, there's... You know, there's cultural background, there's historical background, there's different genres of literature, and, and all these kind of things get factored into uh, the interpretation of Scripture. But ultimately, the right interpretation of Scripture, the technical word is exegesis, which is trying to read out the actual God-intended meaning, which is literally true, as opposed to reading into uh, you know, what we want it to mean. And, and so, you know, we believe the Bible's an error in the, in the sense that it's, you know, all God's word, it's all true, it's, it's all accurate uh, as far as, you know, what it's saying. Uh, but, you know, the approach to interpretation is not always a literal uh, uh, approach. So add to that, please. <laughs> sure. Uh, I guess to, to be short and sweet, uh, you can trust your Bibles. Uh, we don't have to read our Bibles and wonder, is that really true? Once we've interpreted the Bible and interpreted it correctly, we don't have to question whether that teaching of the Bible is true or not. Now, that doesn't mean that a literal interpretation of a particular passage is always correct. So Revelation is a great example. You have beasts with seven heads and ten horns, and, and I don't think we should be you know, trekking through the Smoky Mountains looking for this beast uh, right now because that's a symbol for the Roman Empire or, or the threat to the church at that time. And, and there's nothing, um, I'm not questioning the truthfulness of the Bible and saying that. I'm, I'm simply trying to understand what the Bible is teaching accurately and then saying, well, that thing is, is true. Now, the question of, of uh, the Bible's relationship with archaeology, the Bible's relationship uh, with science, uh, these things are, are, are tricky uh, partly because archaeology doesn't tell us the whole story and science doesn't tell us the whole story. And, and actually the Bible, it tells us everything we need to know, but it doesn't tell us the whole story. We don't know uh, the precise color of Jesus' hair, uh, for instance. 
Um, so, so we only know what the Bible is, is meant to reveal to us. Um, and we don't have answers to all these questions. There are some places where archaeology is, is difficult to reconcile with what the Bible teaches. And it's difficult to reconcile the Bible with what science teaches us, teaches us perhaps, in, in, in some cases. Uh, and we don't have to have all of the answers to those things. I don't think we have to know exactly how all of this works out to trust the Bible. Uh, it may be that our archaeology is incorrect and our interpretation of the Bible is correct or that our science is incorrect and the Bible is, or maybe we're misinterpreting the Bible and, and archaeology is correct, but we've misread a passage. Uh, one day, perhaps, we'll know the answer to these questions. Right now, we don't know the answer to all these questions, but that's no reason not to trust the Bible. As a matter of fact, uh, if you look at the history of archaeology in the Bible, what, what we can see is instances in which, as we've learned more about archaeology, it turns out that archaeology does affirm the Bible. Uh, there are some cases in the past where, where we thought that archaeology contradicted the Bible, but then as we made more discoveries, it turned out that archaeology didn't contradict the Bible. And so I'm perfectly comfortable having full faith in the truthfulness and the reliability uh, of the Bible, even though I don't have all the question or all the answers to to the questions I ask right now. That's good. When it comes to socialism and communism, how can I reconcile with others who adhere to these economic slash political philosophies when I believe them to be unbiblical and worth fighting against? What was? Can you, can you read it one more time? Sorry. When it comes to socialism and communism. How can I reconcile with others who adhere to these economic and political philosophies when I believe them to be unbiblical and worth fighting against? Well, um, I mean, I, I would say, and, and you may disagree, but um, not saying that politics aren't important, but I think we need to keep in mind as Christians that our first and primary allegiance is to Christ and to the kingdom of God. And I think we need to try to keep things focused on Jesus as much as possible. Um, and once again, you may disagree, but, uh, you know, I don't really, I don't speak about politics at, at, at church, at least in... I mean, we may speak about issues that the Bible speaks about, but part of where I'm coming from is... I don't want to say anything um, that's uh, going to turn a Democrat or a Republican away from hearing the gospel. And that, that's where I start from. And I, I promise you, I can stand up here and preach about politics and offend Democrats and Republicans right now uh, because um, I think there's plenty of wrong to go around uh, at, at this moment. But uh, so I, I think we start with, with Jesus uh, and, and focus there. But at the same time, and um, I think it may have been at last year's Q&A that I shared this, but at some point last year, uh, there were two or three different times with people of different ages at True Life that I had to explain to them what socialism is and uh, why it's dangerous and why it's something that we really don't want. Uh, now, I would more probably approach that from a, just a historical uh, standpoint, or if you want current events, tell people to look at Venezuela and, uh, and what's happened there, than I would necessarily a biblical uh, standpoint. So 
Um, I, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with warning people against that, but I think when we deal with these kind of issues, that we need to be careful to not do it in a way uh, that uh, compromises our witness for Christ or would make it harder for people to hear the gospel. Yeah, I would say, and thank you for that great answer, um, the, um, the Bible, theology, our Christian faith certainly has implications for social policy, political policy, economic policy. I would never deny that. But we have to be very careful uh, that we don't confuse our faith with a particular economic, social, or political policy. And uh, I don't know that I'm qualified to, to comment on socialism or communism or, or the Marxism that, that these grew, grew, grew out of. Uh, but I would say this, my understanding of these things is, is that the intentions, uh, even though the underlying philosophy may be, may be um, incorrect, the intentions are good. The, people who are interested in socialism and communism want to accomplish justice. They want to make sure that everyone in society is cared for appropriately. And, and those are things that Christians can agree with. Maybe not the policies, but the goals to some extent, our goals that Christians can share. And so there is some common ground there. And so if we're looking at reconciliation, again, it's more important uh, that, that we are communicating the message of Christ. But if we're looking uh, to reconcile relationships uh, when it comes to working together politically or socially, then, then perhaps we can say, well, we disagree about the means, but, but let's talk about ways that we can work together to accomplish good uh, for the less fortunate and vulnerable members of our society. It may be a gospel connection that could be made with it. Maybe in affirming the affirming the intent is you know, part of the issue with the underlying philosophy. You know, is is the idea that you know we're either you know born you know morally neutral or good, and society corrupts that when the Bible actually teaches the opposite of it. And this has certainly been an area where history has borne out the truthfulness of Scripture because uh, socialism. Uh, you know, power ends up corrupting, and it may have started with these, uh, you know, good ideals, but that's not, it's ended up in death and suffering in places where it's been implemented. Why? Because, you know, the issue is not ultimately society. It's not sociological. The issue is, is, is ultimately, you know, individual in our hearts and corrupt sinful people, corrupt societies and, uh, you know, bring injustice and oppression, uh, and oppression upon other people. And uh, so, you know, there is that theological point and, and I think connection point with the gospel to be made with it. Okay, so it's noon. We have three questions left. Do you want to try to tackle those? Let's do them like rapid fire. Then. Oh, okay. Well, this first one's kind of interesting. It's a, I, it's a really um, cool question that is coming to us. They actually first sent me a picture and only a picture, so I had to wait a long time for the question, so it was very interesting. And I can't really give you a good visual of the picture, but um, it's a sweatshirt, okay? The question is, my 17-year-old daughter bought this hoodie because she likes to watch paranormal shows. My wife does not approve of it because it has a Ouija board symbol on it. Is it okay for her to use it? I'm okay with it because it's just a hoodie. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think you could argue it either way. You, you could certainly, um, you could certainly say that it's it's just a hoodie, and maybe it is. Uh, you know, for me, both for 
you know, what it portrays. We don't know if this young lady is a Christian or not. Yeah. Well, okay. So, yeah, I would say if somebody's not a Christian, whatever, as far as what you wear. If it is a Christian, I don't know. I'd have some concerns about the person portraying this. But I think then when you get into Ouija boards, that kind of thing, I mean, just having some dealings with ministering to people with those kind of things, I mean, you can be opening the door to some things. You know, I don't think the kind of the occult uh, kind of stuff is, is stuff that you really want to dabble in a, a whole lot. So uh, I think it would be safer not to. Uh, I, you know, I think it's more of a gray area. And so if, if they disagree, if you disagree, if you want to give the counterpoint to it, I, I think be open to that. But it, it, would, it would just concern me based on my experiences in uh, ministering to teenagers over the years. That's very similar to what I would say. Um, I think we would all agree that just because someone wears a cross pendant doesn't make them a Christian, right? So just have a Ouija board symbol wouldn't make you a member of the occult, I suppose, uh, in in the same way. However, uh, I tend to be someone who errs on the side of caution and, and, and to avoid contact with such things. Okay, rapid fire number one. So number two, what role does well, the... Wait, can I say one? It's sort of a Bible verse. Uh, the, the, sorry. The, 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 I'll mess up rapid fire. But I mean, Scripture does say, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And maybe that's a verse that would apply to that situation. Yeah. Okay. What role does the Holy Spirit work in people's lives, and should one pray to the Holy Spirit? Well, um, you know, the Holy Spirit is indispensable both to salvation and living the Christian life. I think, um, you know, in, in some theological denominational circles, he's overemphasized, but uh, in some, you know, maybe Baptist circles, he can be underemphasized. But the Bible, you know, Jesus said the Spirit would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. You know, the Holy Spirit reveals Christ, regenerates hearts you know, brings people to saving faith in Christ. And then uh, once we're saved, you know, he, he's, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who keeps us saved. You know, he's the person, presence, and power of God in the life of a believer. He convicts, he teaches, he guides, he comforts, he encourages, he equips us to witness, he gives us spiritual gifts to use in, in, in serving God. And it's why, uh, you know, the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, um, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit, we're trying to live the Christian life on our own, and we can't live the Christian life on our own any more than we can be saved on our own. So I would say the key to living the Christian life is to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, in the Old Testament said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, uh, says the Lord. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with praying to the Holy Spirit, but I think the, you know, the general model of prayer that's pictured in the New Testament is we pray to the Father through the Son as we're guided by the Holy Spirit. I don't have a thing to add to that. That's great. Okay. Well, this final one might kind of be a Jimmy question because it asks specifically about does true life believe in the rapture of the church before tribulation? I'll take this one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, so I, I would I would make the distinction here, um, uh, you know, just uh, to uh, maybe use some big words to end with that a lot of you ought to be familiar with if you've done challenges to Christianity in small group. Uh, there's primary doctrine, secondary doctrine, tertiary doctrine. You know, primary is the essentials of the faith, stuff that's non-negotiable. Secondary is stuff that's important. 
uh, that, uh, you know, we may have a position on as a church, but it's not essential to salvation. And if another church has a different uh, position, we're not, you know, that, that's fine. Uh, tertiary doctrine is basically just, uh, it doesn't really matter that, I mean, it matters, but uh, it, in the sense of, like, you could be a member of True Life and um, have a completely different viewpoint on this, and that's completely fine. So I, I would say I would place the doctrine of the rapture uh, as tertiary uh, doctrine. It's, it's third order. It's, um, uh, I mean, I personally believe that the rapture of the church takes place before the tribulation, but we have no official formal position on that as a church. And so, you know, if you believe mid-trib, post-trib, or don't even believe there's a tribulation, that's completely fine both to be a member, not even just to be a member, to teach. Or, uh, you know, one of our small group leaders is, I think he's, I'm pretty sure he's mid-trib. And, uh, you know, we've kicked it around, but at the end of the day, uh, I don't think it affects a whole lot. It affects nothing as far as salvation. Uh, It affects very little, I think, as far as spiritual growth. Now, you know, what is primary doctrine for us is affirming the literal return of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, beyond that, we can agree to disagree about some of the details, and, and, and that's fine. So that's where we would classify that particular one. Okay. That well, it? thank you, gentlemen. You did a good job again. Thanks. Thank you, Ryan. Let's uh, give our panel a round. Appreciate Dr. Stokes joining us, and I'm really thankful that the Lord has uh, brought him to Carson Newman. And... Um, Appreciate you guys being here or, uh, you know, joining in online. Just to in, encourage you, if there's, you know, come talk to us. If you've got a question, want to talk about something, or uh, if you'd rather text us here online. Hey, Ellie, you care to put up that uh, slide that from back at the beginning of the service that has the, uh, yeah, that one. Thank you for reading my mind. Uh, yeah, so if you want to communicate something to us, you can text 94,000, TLC guest, or TLC decision, TLC uh, prayer, if you've got a prayer request, or uh, just, you know, TLC guest will get you our online connection card. If you want to take, a, you know, next step spiritually and like to let us know, you can text TLC decision. But like I say, uh, you know, come talk to us if you've got a question, but uh, thanks for being here. Hope you have a great day. Hope you stay well. Let, let me close this in prayer, and we'll uh, dismiss with uh, that.